Hello, everybody. This is Aisha from Lula, a podcast exploring how we see the world through language and culture, having conversations with individuals navigating movements, our natural flow, how culture and language intersect, evolve, and connect or divide us. With me here, Gina. Gina is a passionate human being, an educator, a mother, a motivational speaker. Hi, Gina. Hi, Aisha. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm um, doing great. I am in Honduras, as you know, and uh, we have been very, very active in opening our school, trying to, to start the school year, have teachers, students, everyone prepared at uh, this moment. What is your role in the school? Well, it has, I think it's a, I could say it's a narrative and uh, of different hats. I began my, I began as an early childhood teacher at the school. Um, through the years, it has evolved to different caps and different, different responsibilities. Um, for the last two years, I was working as a director of teaching and learning. And um, in the last month and a half, I have been um, asked to move to as an interim superintendent which is a different role, a very needed role at this moment with um, managing a school, a distance learning, managing um, how to connect to students, how to keep on giving the best education as possible in, in a virtual world and, and managing the pandemia. So it's a different role, but um, all with, as you mentioned, all with one focus, the best education for our students and um, trying to support the families through this, through this time. Do you want to describe what kind of school you're in? Oh, yes. Um, Escuela Internacional San Pedrana, which we call EIS. Um, it's located in San Pedro Sula, Honduras. You probably have heard a lot about San Pedro Sula and also Honduras. Most of the um, effects or information that you hear online are not positive, but our school has been with, um, with since the 1957, I think. Wow. I and um, it's an international school. It began by providing um, the education of students who were, um, from parents or families that were from outside the country who were had, had immigrated to Honduras and, um, and were now working and living in San Pedro Sula. San Pedro Sula is very unique, is, is in the northern coast of Honduras. Um, it is a valley, it's in, it's in a valley, um, it's the industry city, a lot of the industries are around. And with that, um, through the last 10, 12 years, it was a place where a lot of negative um, impact had occurred. So the school has shifted a lot from, move, from having families that were international to now a lot of local families. Mm -hmm. So it's 1,800 students, two yeah. campuses, um, school from toddlers all the way to 12th grade. Mm -hmm. um, so we have an early childhood program, five sections, elementary, 500 and something kids, and we continue with that. One is the other campus is a satellite school with a beautiful, beautiful um, history. Mm -hmm. It has, um, I think, 90 something years. 
-hmm. And um, it started as part of a of the Chiquita Banana, the fruit company, the banana company. Mm. You think about Honduras. Honduras used to be a banana republic. So um, the city, the this school began to by providing the support or providing education to the children of the people that worked in um, the fruit companies. Mm-hmm. After the '70s, when the or when the school when the company started leaving and um, the, it was sold and also inherited to the main campus, which is the one in, in San Pedro Sula. So now we have two. So our students from middle school, they moved to our high school in our mm. in main city. Um, so it's a bilingual education, right? Yes, it is bilingual. Um, it, we begin with and toddlers and nursery, it's a nursery and first language, monolingual. Mm-hmm. Um, the school through the first three years, nursery begins monolingual Spanish um, with a little literacy of reading, storytelling, anything in English. And then in pre-K, they do begin a full immersion into the mm-hmm. second language. By kindergarten, um, they do have, let's, 90% of their time is in English and 10% of their time is in the Spanish class, which is, it's, it's dual. Mm-hmm. They, when they teach in, in, in English, they say they read the very hungry caterpillar mm-hmm. that also is in Spanish. So both are together. They see by like first grade. Oh, you go. By first grade, I, I, the students can communicate in English to still prefer Spanish. And we, at we embrace both we don't have we don't we have moved away from saying so saying you cannot speak your first language we don't mm-hmm. do that we have made studies at our own school where um we have had piloted classes and um, they are teaching in spanish the same content and a year later we find out that the students who have been immersed in spanish with that, their scores or their development in the second language is stronger and even stronger in the first language. Mm-hmm. So that in just saying that um, our immersion is full, but it is used in the classrooms as a structure. Students can participate with their friends and they can speak Spanish. To the moment that they do speak to the, to the teacher, the, you have to speak to the common language of the teacher and of, the, of um, all students, which is English, just in case some of the students are not from Honduras. So the common language is English and you do communicate whenever you're going to present um, whatever is being studied in, 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 their, in their second language, which is mm-hmm. English. Yeah, because I'm, I'm really fascinated by the intersection of language and hierarchy, yes. like empower. And uh-huh. identity, um, you see children young on are very proud of their language because they don't, they don't understand that with language comes status and identity. But then in high school, especially, I mean, talking in Kuwait, like we're having a huge language loss because people speaking more English and they're not, they're losing the first language. They're becoming more, more comfortable yeah. with English than their own language. And I see this is dangerous. 
It is, it is. One of the uh, areas that we have tried at our school is, um, it's called the HOPE pro, pro, uh, Project, which is the Honduran Project of, of Identity and um, trying to make sure that our students, whenever they leave, they will, um, we have, they have connected to the language, the culture, to know who they are and be able to use those strengths to communicate to other cultures and wherever they are, if it's in Honduras or outside. So it is true. It is important. I grew up, Aisha, uh, we can talk about that later, but I grew up in a time where English was the status. If you spoke English, mm -hmm. um, you were seen as more intellectual. You were seen as with more opportunities of work. You were seen as, um, and I think also that if you did come from this, these Western countries or specifically from North America to from United States or, um, or Britain, let's say also, you were, um, it was, that's where you wanted to go or that's how you wanted to be or you wanted to reach. If you made it to that or you spoke that, you had more opportunities in the world to make it. So um, I grew up with that. Um, a lot of my foreign higher teachers would come and um, which there was it, great things that I learned from them because I was open to other cultures very young and, and I used to love to listen to their own stories. But um, at the same time, we only had, as I, you know, one hour or less of Spanish. Mm. And um, so it was not reinforced with the same, with the same passion as the second language was. Mm -hmm. So right now we're trying to change that. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the school is realizing that and shifting that. It seems like there's a huge kind of cultural shift happening. It is. It is. Um, it is. We knew, for example, I could know, I, I knew a lot of the states from the United States, mm -hmm. and I did not know many of the rivers in Honduras. And so wow. there were things that you knew that, okay, there's, this is the gap, and this is a concern. How can I defend some parts of the issues of Honduras when, when I do not know the background of much of it because I was never exposed to it? Yeah, I think that's a huge effect of colonization, right? Dominating yes. not only the land, but the language. And then you, you, people don't know what the, what their identity is, what even their language is. Um, did, did that affect how you raised your children? I, I think there's, it goes back what came out positive and what did not come out positive from those experiences. Um, I did grow up in, in a very small small town in the northern coast, a, a banana um, owned by the Standard Fruit Company, Dole Company. And um, they're, they're all my classmates or parents came from the same community. So with that to say, there were opportunities that I had of meeting teachers from other places and trying to connect. So, and understanding they would come thinking with an idea and um, finding out it was not what they thought it was. A, that education was different than learning, that teaching to Spanish students was different. So we were aware of that, but it was something because we wanted them in our school, we wanted to please them. So mm -hmm. we tried to raise them in our country and sometimes 
The good thing is that we were open to analyze and say, okay, what are his strengths? What is this teacher's weaknesses? How can we make sure this teacher likes us or likes our school or our community for them to stay, um, which was great. But at the same time, you you would not, there were things that we could, I could have mentioned and, and say our food or it, it was as delicious as a hamburger or as delicious mm-hmm. as some other foods that we didn't have. And um, to be more, um, to be, I think, and not enjoying, but that we were, that we, that we loved or we were proud of our own culture, of our own food, mm-hmm. of our own dances, of our own dialect or everything that we had as being Honduran. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how did you grow up? Like, what language? When did you start learning English? When did you realize that there, there is a power connected to the language you spoke? Um, I grew up. I, my first experience with English was in first grade, and um, the, it was it, all our foreign high, all our teachers were from the United States, so communicating with them and my classmates were from the United States. I think the 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 big difference that I found was that a lot of my classmates who were not, our, our school was not incorporated to the government. We, so I never took Spanish. So our friends took Spanish at another school during the summer. What I would notice, and I would always say that they could express well, better in mm-hmm. English and in Spanish because they were re- being reinforced in a Spanish school also. So they could transfer back and forth to both languages. Um, we, at the school, um, it was English. And I would hear English because I was in a, in a surrounded by a lot of um, uh, North American from or from Canada, United States, specifically from the United States in my little town called La Ceiba. I did, I did contact and I would, I would thank God for that. I would um, communicate well with everyone, but outside our community, La Ceiba was also a, a city or a coast with a lot of, of African, um, I would say slaves that would come to the United States. And one way or another, the pirates, which were Lafitte and others, would let them get free and would leave them in the northern coast of Honduras. Mm. So all these communities stayed there. And um, they had their own dialect. And, and they, through the years, they lived in their own communities. And it was um, the Garifuna a mm. dialect. And those were my friends because my house was beside um a lot of uh, a lot of the families and i i remember playing with them and learning their own dialect then and mm-hmm. combining in spanish and their own dialect for many things and then going to school and learning english so when i think about it my because i learned it from very small it was a smoother transition and understanding that there were dialects that I grew up around, understood that languages were different cultures. Because in specifically in the Garifuna language, the, their dances are different, the dialect was different, their food was different. They, um, 
their Saturdays meant different things. I used to go to their houses and they were all dancing a specific type of dance and eating the specific food and wearing the mask and the dresses. And, and I used to enjoy that. And I was aware of those, of, the, of how friendship, mm-hmm. um, it, it, we have a lot more things in common, but also there were uniqueness that made them special and very intriguing. And I love that too. Mm-hmm. So I was exposed to that. Where it was difficult at school was um, if you had a difficulty in, in, in your learning, if you had a difficulty mm. in writing, if you had a difficulty with um, language development or literacy, or if you had um, a diagnosis of dyslexia, and students in that area with a second language, if it was orate, it was better. If it was in writing, and, and it was, it's difficult when you have two languages and one is being spoke, is spoken at home, completely different than one that, I, that is spoken at school. Mm-hmm. And w- did you realize that your, your, your tongue has been very, um, like been absorbent of the environment around you? As you mentioned, like you started like picking up on the dialect, you start picking up on the English and you start picking up on your on in Spanish and probably there's many dialects within Spanish, you know, probably within Honduras is like, and I, and you know, are we preserving those dialects? Are we, do you feel like you're still using your own dialect with your own family? I am. I am. Um, I, one of the things that I'm noticing right now is that we're more aware of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying to find connections to other uh, communities of, of uh, in not only Honduras. I'm going to stay in Central America. If I speak to people who are from Nicaragua, I know they're from Nicaragua. Mm-hmm, exactly. If, yeah. if you're there, you're speaking Spanish, and either it's fast, it's it's you you understand. But there's dialects and there's words and you the different accent. And I can tell you who's from Costa Rica. I can tell you who's mm-hmm. from El Salvador, mm-hmm. Guatemala. We do define we have the differences. Um, but at the same time, what I'm noticing in the last five, seven years is it's in literature, it's in songs, it's in how much we're trying to use the dialect from Honduras to use it as part of our identity. Now there's books. Now there is, um, there's some, we have shirts. It's part of our, a, a, it's part of a different used by, by, even by the government when they want to sell the country to, for, for tourism. There are some, some words it's being used to, to support the identity of who we are. That, that's really beautiful. Like, I think now we're realizing the power in our mm-hmm. own identities and how it's attractive, you know what I'm saying? Uh, keeping our culture and even like for as a country, like it could bring you money. And I think when governments understand that, then they try to preserve the language. Um, yeah, so what brought you to education? Oh. Especially multicultural education, because I know that's one of your passions. Yes, um, I think is I, I want for many reasons. One, I think it was my parents, um, but m- my dad was someone who um, they he came from a European parents, and um, 
moved to Honduras and he would always say, you know, my house did not have any, it did not have any cement gene, it was dirt. We started from very low. Um, and, and three of them went and they even got their masters. But my dad would always say, and um, his teachers were uh, Pablo Coelho. And- mm, uh, Really? Yes. Oh, yes. Fun. Uh, and um, he studied his master's in, in Chile. And then he was, um, he worked with, he knew and one of his other professors were Paulo Fieri mm. from, from Brazil before he was, um, ex, ex, you know, he couldn't stay in Brazil. He moved to Europe. But um, he would always, those were the people that left an impact on my dad. And I think he transferred that to me. Because in our conversations, he would always bring, what about the women's side? What about education, Gina? What is the key to improve a country? What about, um, in Spanish, it's called the fuga de cerebro, which means brains leaving the country, never coming back. What do you do with the people who do leave the country because they want a better life? And how can you make sure that they're still connected to improve Honduras? So those conversations came from, or also empowering the, 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 the people who needed the most. And it was the people who were in poverty, the ones who don't have a voice. And to always remember that I had to be their voice, that, um, so he brought that area. The second part is, as I said, I, I was blessed to, to, to go to a school, a privileged school, where I had teachers every year from different parts of the world. You know, they would mm -hmm. come with different stories that I did not know, but in my, as they narrate or they would tell the story, I would imagine it. And as any imaginary or imagery that you make in your mind, it's a beautiful one. Mm -hmm. So that was my way of connecting to it, trying to, to make those, those connections and trying to understand it and always wishing, hey, I can go there. Maybe I can visit there. What, um, and also finding limitations of words, for example, and I'm, I'm not very strong in the word American because one of the big differences about in, in Honduras and all Latin America, we don't think we have seven continents. We teach our children that we have six continents and that America That's is right. one continent. Yeah. Because all of us are from America. So whenever there's very differences, but those minute differences can bring a shift in a perspective of how you're presenting and how you're seeing yourself. Who's writing um, the history? Who is telling our stories? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, whenever I hear someone say, well, in America, we do this. And I'm thinking, well, I'm from America, too. So that's a huge one. It's I am from Central of America, and um, we all are part of America. So, so when I would hear that, I'm always thinking: from what perspective are you? Do you have the big perspective, or are you focusing in one which is not reality? Because in the none of the other countries see it like that. Um, so it came for that. Now, education, personally, uh, family. Family. My my sister had um, a one of her, her youngest oldest. I'm, I'm 
oldest child had a, an accident when she, he was very young and lost a lot of the frontal lobe and um, had limitations in the area of learning. And I found myself always reading or trying to see how he could do, how they could work at school and what else could be done. Our school also worked in a program called Students Teaching Students. So by the grade that I was, I think I was in fourth grade or third grade, I was already tutoring other students. And we were working, mm -hmm. you, you had to advocate for one child who was younger than you. And you had to make sure that every day or at least three times a day, one every day or the minimum three times a week, I remember, you had to connect to this child. And I find myself that that's what I liked. That is how I, um, I enjoyed it. And then I start tutoring and making money out of that. You know, uh, say, okay, I'll tutor after school. This is how much I charge. Go pick me up. Go take me back to the house. And like babysitting, except I didn't babysit. I, I tutored. And that's how I became interested in education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and where did you do, uh, when you moved, what did you do your undergrad? And how was that move from Honduras to... I know you went to the U.S. Okay, um, I think that was huge. And I'm going to tell you the reason that that was huge. I had been in the States with my families, but it's a different story whenever you go to a small town. I studied in the northern part of the state of Louisiana. Oh. Uh, uh, in a little town called Monroe. Um, positive things. Uh, I was... Um, I was they would always, I, I found a lot of friendly, friendly people trying to embrace new community members. Things that shocked me, I would be very direct. I would go into the cafeteria and I still could not understand why um, black people would sit on the right side and the other communities would sit on the left. I could not understand what was happening. Um, I didn't mind, I would sit anywhere where I wanted to, but I did not understand why that difference. Racism placed differently in Honduras? Well, yes. If I hate, this is how I see skin. I see skin mm -hmm. as melatonin and, mm -hmm. and it's, it's which is all brown, just lighter and darker. That's how I see it. And that's how I was taught. And in Honduras, everyone is brown, <laughs> different shades of it. So it, that's how I, I was raised. So when I, when I went there, I, I, I would notice that they would separate and they would sit in there with their friends, of course, but it was obvious, obvious. Mm. That was 1987. In 1987, um, there were some fam my first one of my classmates in a, in a class I, I still remember that she would get up and move from her from where she was sitting down 1987 and, um, she would move and she would move to another uh, seat and never near me um, try not to be in the groups as we were working because it was already in education Later, I found out that she was a niece of a politician who was in the Ku Klux Klan. And oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely has her ideas, and, and I was not part of who she wanted to be with around. Mm -hmm. So those were my, my experiences of, of not understanding um, and feeling 
the minority in a way saying, okay, some people don't see me as an equal. Mm -hmm. uh, other things that I would know, you know, they would ask me, where is Honduras? How do these people live? Do they live in trees? Which was very normal. Um, uh, and just questions like that. But little by day, I knew that my role was um, to say this, extend their knowledge and, and talk about my country as, as the strengths that it has. None of them are perfect, but it was necessary for them to understand what a beautiful world we have. You know, mm -hmm. It's not only about this little town in the northern part of Louisiana. Yeah, when I met you, um, you're always like a strong advocate of Honduras. You're like the next ministry of education. Yes. I know you're like always trying to recruit people. You're, you're good at this. Are you interested in coming to Honduras? Like you're constantly thinking, how can you, you truly believe in Honduras and you believe how it could change and it could improve. I, I you know, when I, it, I think it was a course that we took together. Well, I don't know if you have taken it, but I, in one of the research, it does mention the impact of, of, of male who are in jail, who end up in jail, who do not, who have had trauma in their life and mm -hmm. in childhood, mm -hmm. and how in the future they do not end in a negative path or they don't end up with issues in their life that are strong. Mm -hmm. um, two people make the difference. And just information like that, impresses me that that gives a power of it reminds me of the power of one human being nature that's what it tells you i can make a difference i can make the difference in a come in a country i can make a difference over the life of someone some people tell me well gina is so different in honduras that it's, it's so hard to live in and it has through the last years but i'm always thinking yes but there's nine million people in honduras who i know i can change not all of them but i can change the life of one and that's enough so um for me one of the the strengths of honduras is that even with all of this all the issues that we go through we are still smiling we go up we go to work we try to move on and um become very appreciative um, of what we have and just move on and accept and say, yes, I know, but we have to continue. Some criticize it and say, well, that means that they adapt to the changes and they are fine with it and they don't fight for their voices. Others, I think I would take the other side and say, this is tough, but I would not get depressed. I'm not going to succumb and just let go. I will continue, fight for it, and move forward. Um, so yeah, I am an advocate of Honduras. And I think it goes back into when I graduated from college, from my bachelor's, it was, I was grow, is a, I did start working at a school in, in Louisiana. And at the end of my, at the end of your internship or the year that you work, you have to make a decision of coming back or staying. And, that is when I, I truly decided to say, no, I'm going back. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when you, you, I think that love or that decision goes back and I got to make the decision again. And I'm going to be a strong advocate to the decisions of my life and back to, to the country that needs me. And it's your because land. It you know what I'm saying? It's your land. It's your people. You're not going to give up yes. on it so easily. And I admire this about you because you, you, you're privileged enough to have a, a way out of that reality uh -huh. but you choose always to come back 
and try to do your part as much as you can as an educator, you know, uh, do your part in the whole social structure. Uh, and I really admire I do. Yeah. I do. And I'm always telling you, I think it doesn't matter. I was, they always tell me, Gina, if you're going to this decision, you make it, it's going to go, it's going to work for two years and then it's going to change with this government it's going to change with this. Everything is going to change. Why well, try because it's going to work for two years. That's my answer. Mm. If it doesn't last, it's out of my control. But what is in control is what I can do at this moment and what I can do for the next two years. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's necessary when you have children. Aisha, when you're especially right now in the pandemic, when the schools are closed, and when you go into the streets and you have children who are three year olds and asking for money for food in the streets, there has to be you know there's nothing worse. So it has to get better. So um, why can't why can't school or preschool be provided where they can play, where you don't have to buy the most expensive toys? You can teach, you can teach languages, you can teach anything, you can teach about numeracy just by looking at their surroundings and, and use those surroundings to develop conceptual thinking or competency, yeah, anything yeah. that you're built. So if it, it it can be done and and with them it's it's trying to develop that grit that resilience and 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 flexibility of making becoming better or wiser in the streets by using others and and for them to be connected with education with learning not education learning i agree with um, you because i think education have like a negative connotation and yes like a lot you know i think we need to focus on the assets Mm -hmm. brings and families bring to schools which are learning environments so, yes. so i think it is a learning environment I'm, i mean they have there's been programs that you take them out of the street and put them in schools and desk and teaching and making them memorize i'm going oh no not even i would do that but <laughs> taking me back to the streets where i'm you know talking to every people in every car and asking More for exciting money. Yeah. and it's exciting and uh, why would i ever do that and um so there's it's it's really thinking out of the box and what is works for a system of education that is already broken mm -hmm. in a third world country and what is the best for the student what are I mean, Honduras is beautiful the resources the mountains the 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 tropics and, and we have to protect them we can do a lot you don't have to learn even though you do have to learn about let's say Australia, but we can teach about the coral reefs that Australia has that we also have and how do we protect them and they see them. So it has to be meaningful. It, ha it can be by doing it, cleaning them, um, protecting how, and they, even the children in the street can be part of that. And it's bringing them to, to the institutions by doing, to have voice, but also to have fun mm -hmm. and for it to be engaging, engaging. Oh, Got to tell you a story about the word engagement. I don't Coffee. know. If we... I love stories. No, it is true. We're we're looking and talking about how do we engage students. This is a huge conversation. We always have. How can we engage students in in learning? How can we know we have to use voice that they have to have ownership? Um, even teachers, when we're looking, how do we with professional learning communities? How do we build? Um, 
their own voice, their choices of what they want to become better in, in any of the areas of education. And uh, I was translating my letters that I do in English. I have to also place them in Spanish or vice versa to the community of teachers because we do have bilingual or monolingual Spanish teachers too or monolingual English speakers. So my letters have to be in English and Spanish. Did you know the word engagement is not in Spanish? It doesn't no. exist. It doesn't my Spanish is conversational, I'm not, you know. Yeah. It doesn't exist. We have motivation, mm. we have connection, but we don't have engagement. So how, what did you, how did you, I mean, I can see, cause I speak, I speak Arabic and some, like, some words are not, they don't translate. So imagine the impact in education when I'm talking and we're trying to develop engagement with students and with teachers who have word is what we use to communicate what we do. Mm -hmm. Because words that we use is what we do, right? If yeah, not, words they have ideas. It's a concept. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have a word engagement, and I'm talking about the book from Douglas Fisher, which by the way, I have it here beside me from Fisher and Frey. And you're talking about engagement, I have to use other words to explain it, because that specific word, it's not in Spanish. It doesn't exist. Motivation is, but that connection combined to motivation and that it's not there. So in a system of education, when you're working with teachers, they're confusing it and they're looking at engagement as a motivation and it's not. So I have to teach engagement, the professional learning or the language we're speaking in. And, and when you have a team and you want to explain to Spanish teachers how to support engagement with your students, it has to be through practice, has to because that word has no connection in their brains. They don't see it because we don't use it in Spanish. It's mm -hmm. not being used through, or it has, it has not been identified as a, as a key component for learning. Hmm. And that's the and I thought that was fantastic. It is, it is. Cause that's the beauty of knowing multiple languages cause each have, it's, it's it, it manage your perception about the world. Mm -hmm. Because probably there's some words in Spanish that do not exist in English, like um, the one you described earlier about the brains leaving. Uh -huh. um, it's, it has a different connotation in English than than in Spanish, and that's the beauty of being bilingual. Um, to end this broadcast, I always ask the question: What is home for Dina? What is home for Dina? For me. Um, I wish I could say specifically, this is a place that um, here, or this is in, in this specific area or this specific, I think it goes more into the memories or where I feel comfortable or where is part of my history. So for home for me is, if I want to talk about it, and I mean in the place right now through a pandemia, I want to feel comfortable. I want to feel safe. So that home for me is La Ceiba, where I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about freedom, 
and 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 not freedom that's going up, but right now, for example, where I where I would feel safer in a way of going out and mm-hmm. a way that can feel home. That for me is Louisiana. Those are my mm-hmm. kids are there. My friends are there. There is, um, it's safer to walk. I have that freedom, but at the end, where is home? I think as, as an international person, when you're moving from one country to another, um, trying to make those connections to the people around is when you make those connections to the people around. And when you find, when you find yourself belonging, when you find yourself belonging and you start making memories with them, that can become home. Mm. Previously of that, I don't see it becoming home. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me at this moment, after you asking me those questions, home will be where I grew up mm. And, mm. Um, at this moment of my life. Yeah, and I it shifts. That. Things shift and we are, we are dynamic. As you said, it's moments mm-hmm. that we belong feels like home. And it could be a moment we had with a stranger in the train uh, that feels like has the texture, the smell, the feeling of a it home. Does. Yeah. Um, thanks, so, Nina. Yeah, and remember, every language is true. It has um, some words that do not exist. So whenever you're a teacher, you have to look at their letters, their writing, and some of those omissions is because of their language or what, not mistakes, but how they're expressing, it's because of their language. That's how they communicate and they connect. So a teacher, the best they can do is try to not look at only the paper, but the context of where that paper was written and where it comes from. What? Yeah, the history and the rich culture the student bring and their narrative, their environment, it's all plays into the language and learning. Yeah. In Honduras, if you, I've always tell the the teachers, when you have a parent, they'll tell you the history first and then they'll tell you the problem. The Um, problem has never been told first. They don't come and say, I'm here to talk about the grade of my child. Mm. They start by saying, hello, this is what happened. And they tell the whole history Mm. to be able for you to understand where it comes from. And until then, they'll tell you the problem. Mm. And just so much. Imagine the students and those families and in other cultures when it's not done the same way. You go directly to the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think... Now we're we're in a point of view. We don't have we point at time. We don't need to be just only diverse but inclusive, of of as you said, which is a, I think and it's an asset. It is taught me it the is. history instead of me trying to. It is why is this happening? Um, as you said, you know we have been told that humans adapt, and because we adapt, that means we try to connect, and our role as educators or or some human being is to find what is we have in common with the other person mm-hmm. reinforce that and also understand the differences because that will strengthen us too exactly there is some good tension that create learning tension mm-hmm. is necessary mm-hmm. um thanks gina it was fun talking to you i feel like i know you a little bit more thank you thank you asia for this opportunity sure. take care